All right. So we're beginning the year with a short topical series. Now, when we say topical, sometimes that can be a little bit unnerving because we're like, oh, we're just going to talk about a bunch of random things and we're not going to be based in scripture. Um, that's not the case. We're going to be exploring these these big themes that overarch throughout scripture so that way we know that what it is we're expected to do in the normal day-to-day lives as believers. And so today, we're beginning our normal Christianity series with installment part one, that is, This is the Life. Um, Asking a 26-year-old to talk to a, a room full of people who are older, more mature, more spiritual, and more godly than him is a daunting task to give a 26-year-old. So I'm going to do the very best I can, but um, bear with me. Uh, I'm going to boil it down to two principles. And because this is such a big topic, I'm going to give you the two principles up front, and then we're going to sieve through the, in, the entire s- teaching together with the fact that you guys have those foundational two points. The normal life of a believer is founded upon two purposes or principles or foundations, whatever you want to call them. Number one is attend the transforming fellowship with the God who saves. One, attend a transforming fellowship with the God who saves. Pay close attention to that verb, attend. It's probably the most appropriate word we can use in regard to our relationship with the Lord because it expresses both equally how active our relationship with is, with the Lord. It's, it's a verb. We are attending there, but it's also got a, a passive reality to it, right? That we're just, we're just sitting there and God is doing the work. So keep that in mind. Point number one is attend the transforming relationship with the God who saves. And principle number two is very simple. Make disciples. Make disciples is the second of two foundations of the normal life of a believer. These are words that I made up. I made up these two principles. I don't get them from anywhere. They serve the purpose of my teaching so it could help help us to kind of organize this big topic. However, this is scripturally backed. This is comprised in in Jesus's summation of the entire Torah, right? Where they say, what's what's the greatest law uh, in the Bible? And he says, it's, uh, it's twofold. And this is in Mark 12, Matthew 22, and Luke 10. The Mark version of it is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So, Love God and love your neighbor. Love is complicated. There's many facets to love. So we're just going to be focusing on one aspect of our love for God and one aspect of our love for our neighbors. The aspect of our love for God we're focusing on today is just the relationship, just being there with him, having an intimate and close relationship with God. That's how we're going to, that's how we love him. The way we love our neighbor that we're focusing on this morning is love manifested in the form of evangelism. If we are believers and proprietors of the gospel, then we believe that what scripture teaches is true, not that it is an option. So if we believe what scripture teaches is true, then the most loving thing we can do for our neighbor is share the gospel of salvation with them. And we're going to delve into that. So we gave you those two principles up front. The two principles of a normal Christian life are, one, attend a transforming relationship with the God who saves, and two, make disciples. So keep those in mind. We're going to pray, and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to spend the first day of 2017 here amongst your body, amongst your people, and to learn about who you are and delve into what you've teaching what you're teaching us what you've done for us and who you're making us into be what's promised for us I want to take this time to um, lift up those who were um, harmed in the terrorist attack in Istanbul this morning where last I checked uh, I believe 39 people were dead and 70 injured when we talk about the gospel 
of salvation. It's not just good news. It is saving news for a dying world. And we want to be grave and serious as we're learning about what we believe is truth. That this is revelation. We've not come up with this formula. It's been shared with us graciously by a God who loves us. So thank you for bringing us here safely. We pray for the families of those who are hurting. And come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Amen. <clears throat> okay. We're going to start by talking about Robin Hood. I know that sounds weird. But we're going to start by talking about Robin Hood. You guys know the story about Robin Hood, right? And of course you do. Uh, it's obligatory for a sermon to begin with a question. So I'm asking if you guys have heard of Robin Hood, but I know that you have. So let's move on. Uh, Robin Hood is one of the most beloved and iconic figures in English folklore. And the, the oldest reference we have to Robin Hood is actually not a narrative about him. It's just some guy who says, I know the rhymes of Robin Hood. And we have that in, in the late 1300s. Um, but over time, people have been adding to the story. And now we have kind of the model that we know today. Rob from the rich, give to the needy. Um, and around the 1500s, Robin Hood was placed in the context of this political struggle between King Richard the Lionheart and his brother Prince John. So if, if you only know the earlier or more true versions of the Robin Hood story, you won't know the context of that. But if you've seen the Disney's Robin Hood or if you've seen anything more recent, it's always placing Robin Hood within this context. And I'll give you a quick summary of it. England is ruled by a great king. Now, this is within the story. This isn't necessarily my opinion because it's complicated. But England is ruled by this great king. It's a majestic uh, dynasty where people are being treated fairly and the subjects are treated with respect and they're governed in, in peace and with opportunity and they're able to serve King Richard. However, King Richard goes out on the Third Crusade and in his absence, the throne is usurped by his brother, Prince John. And Prince John begins to oppress the people of England. And he rules in tyranny, and he's taking advantage of them. He's charging excessive taxes, and the people are just dying under Prince John. And they are longing for the return of King Richard. And then in swings Robin Hood and all the hijinks that you guys are quite familiar with. So I really love that context. The rob from the rich, give to the needy, the, uh, the, the jousting on the log, the, the piggyback riding on Friar Tuck, all that stuff is a lot of fun. But what I really, really like is this political struggle, this context, this, this story arc. That's, the one, that's what I really enjoy. And I know that this is going to discredit me, but I really like the way it's presented in the Disney version. And if, if there were people out there who are uh, literature enthusiasts, I know that that's offensive and I apologize. But bear with me. The reason I like the Disney version of that story arc is because of the caricature of each character in the story. Because Disney portrays their films where everybody's an animal, King Richard the Lionheart is naturally, he's a lion. But you don't actually see him until the end of the film. Who you see for the vast majority of the film is his brother, Prince John. And Prince John is a very, very poor excuse for a lion. He's lanky, he's thin, and he doesn't even have a mane. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. And the royal garb don't fit him. You know, there's that ongoing joke through the film that the crown is too big for him, and it keeps falling over his eyes, so he has to adjust his ears outward so that way he'll sit on his head, and he has to hold his head really still, otherwise it falls down. Also, the clothes are way too big for him. That's a little bit more subtle. They don't talk about that. They just drape over him, and he's swimming in saggy, baggy clothes the whole time. Yes, it's because the clothes don't belong to him. He's not the king. But it's also an ongoing joke that the role of being a king is too big for him. He's unfit for the throne. He's unfit for every aspect of being a king, even down to the very clothes that he wears. 
now, so the story of Robin Hood continues, and it goes on, and uh, Robin Hood keeps outsmarting Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham, but a crucial point of Robin's and Prince John's exchanges is that he's never compromising the fact that Prince John is on the throne. He's thumbing his nose at him. He's reducing his influence. He's getting everybody to sing a pox on the phony king of England, but he's not getting Prince John off the throne. He's small time, and he's an annoyance, but he's no threat. At the end of the film, Prince John does get plucked off of the throne, but it's because of whom? King Richard. King Richard returns, and he puts his brother in his place, and he comes back to the throne, and he begins, once again, the peaceful rule of the land. And when you see King Richard, he is everything that Prince John is not. He is majestic, he's muscular, he's got a monumental mane, and he's this just jovial presence, and he's able to condemn his brother to the rock quarries. Now, why am I talking about this? It actually parallels the gospel quite well. This idea of a land that was once reigned in peace and in justice and in righteousness, but by deceitful and devious means, an unscrupulous character has taken over the throne. And he falls far beneath what the king of this land is supposed to be. And under his oppression, the people of the land are dying. And then the king returns and reclaims the throne to the, to the joy and the hope of all the people. Of course, what I'm talking about here is, is that the land under the reign of righteousness is planet Earth, the true king being Jesus and the imposter king being Satan. You see, the gospel, in some ways, in the midst of its many different facets, is a political thriller. It's a story about... Um, an ill-stolen throne that has been reclaimed, and then, you know, foot soldiers, propagators of the true king, loyalists being put on the grounds to negotiate the terms of the surrender of earth. That's the story of the gospel. Now, when a king who's been betrayed finally stifles a coup against himself, second only to coming to the throne himself, he has to execute judgment on his adversaries. He has to extinguish his oppressors. It's a symbol of him reclaiming authority, and it's also him saying, you cannot do this. I'm in charge. I am bigger than you. I am king. Your betrayal will be judged. It happens in Robin Hood. When King Richard comes back, he sends his his brother and the sheriff of Nottingham and in the Disney one, Hiss, to go work in the rock quarries. It's a meager punishment for that betrayal, for that coup. But in the context of the gospel, the consequence for betraying the true king is far more severe. It's eternal judgment. Now, all of us here, in addition to Satan, all of us here who are guilty of sin are also guilty in defiance of the true king. So the cross being a place in time in history where Jesus has reclaimed the throne of the kingdom, there is an impending judgment for Satan and for all of us who've defied the true king. It is coming, and it's a terrifying truth. But something really interesting happens, because like I said, at the cross, that's where Jesus reclaims the throne. But what happens when Jesus dies on the cross and comes back and, and is resurrected on the third day? It's actually an interesting account. There's, there's a few different things that happen when he, when he rises from the dead. Um, but the one I want to focus on is in Acts 1. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read through it. It's not going to be the main text of our, our study today. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during the 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they had asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall witness me, uh, witness to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him in their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Okay, so Jesus rises from the dead, and for 40 days, he is explaining to everybody the meaning of his sufferings as the Christ, and why scripture foretold that he needed to do that. And so, 40 days go by, and the apostles are hanging out with them, and they're like, okay, we get it now. Like, you, you did it. You died on the cross. You experienced the sufferings, and now you're back. Is now the time where you're going to restore the reign of peace and righteousness to the world is now the time where you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel to this world. Understand this. At the cross and with the culmination of the resurrection, that seals Jesus reclaiming the throne of the world. It's kind of like the Battle of Normandy. It's the final death stroke. Jesus has reclaimed the throne. However, it does not represent the full consummation of his reign on earth. That is yet to come. And we're in a transitional period right now. And so, and so the apostles, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus had just risen from the grave, they said, is now the time, now that you've died on the cross, now that you've risen from the grave, are you going to be king again in this world? And Jesus gives them an answer that's so iconic of Jesus. This is totally him. They give him this, this really well-prepared question, and he says, basically, yeah, d- don't worry about that. And, and they're just like, d- don't worry about what? And then, and then they're sitting, and they just watched Jesus ascend into heaven, and they have their jaws dropped, their eyebrows furrowed, and their chins to the sky, and they're just like, uh, where, where did he go? Like, I guess that's an answer. That's, that's an answer no. Um, but what's going on? So they're looking up like this. And then two guys dressed in white come and have to say, why are you just standing there? Like, why are you just looking into heaven? These two guys dressed in white are, are probably angels, but uh, no need to be dogmatic about that, no pun intended. And so they're, they're looking up into the sky, and they're just waiting. And these two guys have to say, go back. Go back into Jerusalem and wait. There's a very, very important promise that is to be fulfilled having to do with the Holy Spirit. And we'll pick up that theme a little bit later. But why does there have to be this weird interim? If the world, after the fall of Adam and Eve, even up to the death on the cross and the resurrection three days later, if the world has been languishing in oppression for that entire time, why do we have to wait for now the reign of peace to begin? What's the point? It's this, it's this kind of awkward time between time, place between places. It's a transitional period. And transitional periods are always uncomfortable because you don't know what to do with them. If you're engaged, you don't know if you should start acting like a married couple or if you should still act like you're, you're dating. It's, it's this weird place in between places. Uh, there, there's a song from the Muppet Show uh, that Robin the Frog sings. Just a coincidence, Robin Hood, Robin the Frog. It says, it's called Halfway Down the Stairs. Do you guys know that one? I'm the only Muppet fan in here. Justin is out of town. That's right. Okay, um, it's an A.A. A. Milne poem, and in the Muppets, they sing it. It says, Upway down, halfway down the stairs isn't up and isn't down. 
It isn't in the nursery. It isn't in the town. And all sorts of funny things run through my head. It really isn't anywhere. It's somewhere else instead. It's this awkward thing of when you've not arrived to where you're going, but you've already left from where you've been, what do you do with that period of time? It's a very, very good explanation of this awkward place in Jesus' dynasty. What are we supposed to do with it, and why is this gap here? Well, it goes back to this idea of when a king goes back to his throne, and he has to execute judgment on his enemies. Jesus has to do that. It's an an exercise, an expression of his authority as king, eternal king of this world, that he must judge and punish those who have defied him. That is coming. But there is something about that that is more complicated than just a king and his enemies. There's something about that that makes Jesus different from all other kings in history who have ever been betrayed. And it's that Jesus loves his enemies. That makes this situation so much more complicated than the story of Prince John and King Richard. It's, it's much more complicated than that. Jesus loves his enemies, and he wants to spare them of the coming judgment. It reminds me of uh, K- King David w- with Absalom's rebellion. Do you guys know that story? It's, it's in 2 Samuel. Uh, I'll give you a quick version of it. David has a son named Absalom who wants to be king, but his dad's on the throne. So Absalom starts sitting in the city gates, and whenever somebody wants to go see King David, he stops them and says, David's too busy to see you. And then he's picking his teeth. He's like, too bad there's no one else who cares about the people to take care of you guys. But dad's busy. Sorry. And then, and then people start saying, well, you're, you're the prince. Can you help us? And he says, well, you know, I'd love to. And he starts winning the hearts of the people, and eventually he does get the throne. And David has to go running into the woods. And it becomes this really exciting spy story, if you've not read it. But eventually, David gathers three loyal captains. Uh, It's Abishai, Joab, and uh, Ittai the Gittite. And he says to them, For my sake, be gentle to the young man Absalom. He doesn't want them to kill the man who's betrayed him, stolen his throne, made him go run in hiding. Clear, because it's his son. He loves him. Now, that doesn't pan out. If you want to know how the story ends, you can, you can read it. We'll kind of just move through. But, yeah. Cliffhanger! Uh, but, but that's the same sort of idea. Because Jesus loves his enemies, he doesn't want to execute upon them the judgment that they deserve. And so what he does is he stages this sort of probation period. It's a temporary ceasefire. He's on the throne, yes. He's regained control of this world, yes, because of the cross and what it has afforded, sealed in the resurrection. He has every right to now roll out his judgment and begin his peaceful rule, his peaceful reign of righteousness and justice. But he will not. Because instead what he wants to do is deputize believers like the ones in this room to try to convert his enemies. Yes, Jesus has enemies in the world, but he loves those enemies and he wants them to change their mind and he wants to give them the opportunity to do that. And we, as Jesus' followers, as subjects of the true king and the coming heavenly kingdom, we are deputized. We have to be the foot soldiers on the ground going out and trying to convert the enemies that Jesus loves. Now for the passage of this sermon. Intro over. Uh, Turn with me to the book of Titus. The book of Titus is an interesting book. I'd love to give you all the history of it, but we're running short on time, so I won't do that. All you really need to know is Titus is not exactly a pastor, and he's not exactly a missionary. He's more, uh, he's like a consultant, kind of like an auditor. Uh, Pastor David Pawson, who's a British Baptist preacher, says that the best way he could describe Titus is he's a delegate. He's somebody that Paul has sent to a place where he can't go to spread his mission statement. And he's sent, or left Titus, rather, in Crete, which is an island 
that is infamous for treachery and debauchery. It's not a good place, but a church has started there, and so now this consultant, Titus, has been sent as a delegate to make sure the church is doing all the right stuff. Um, we're going to read verses, chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through 3, verse 8. So le- let me just go ahead and read it. For the grace of God brings, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. The word of the Lord. Paul is really, really hard to understand um, just off the cuff. You always have to read what he's saying over and over again because he's always putting in all sorts of different interjections to clarify what he means. And it's like he'll start a sentence and then it's comma, 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 chameleon. And um, so, so we'll break it up. We'll, we'll figure out what he's talking about here. It starts with, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to read verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, just so we can kind of give grounds of what we're going to read real quick, or what we're going to discuss real quick. For the grace of God that brings men to salvation... Bleh. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So starting in verse 11, we see Paul is outlining that God has poured out his kindness upon all men. And that kindness is, is unto salvation. God is not just peaceable with people. He's active in his approach to save them. God has a plan of salvation for people who are his enemies. And so he has made this available to all men. This is an open-door policy. This is a free a free remedy for everybody who has a disease. And part and parcel with the saving grace comes a mandate to be different from the entire world. Um, part of the reason I chose this passage was because of verse 12, where it says, uh, in the present age. Verse 12 says, we have to be godly in the present age. This is something for now. Referring back to the title, this is the life that we are ideally supposed to be living. And in verse 13, Paul's explaining that we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. He's, he's recognizing what we're talking about here, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is both now and not yet. It is here, and yet it's coming. We're in a place between places halfway down the stairs. Paul is saying that. He's saying we're looking toward the coming and appearing of Jesus Christ, and yet we're supposed to be behaving as if we're living in that now in the present age. We have been saved, and so start acting saved. In living righteously, we're 
historically ahead of the curve. This is where the world is headed, to a reign of righteousness and peace and justice and all to the glory of God. But we're acting that way now, and it acts as a a witness, a foreshadowing for anybody else who's unfamiliar of what is to come. And in verse 14, Paul is emphasizing that the only reason we are equipped to be godly and to not live as we have lived in the past is because Jesus' death afforded that. And we're going to dig into what that, how, how exactly that is in a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll skip verse 15 because he's just, it's just kind of a side comment to Titus. That's not meant for us as the church. It's meant for Titus explicitly. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Well, we all love doing that. Um, Paul's mission plan of spreading the gospel in the land means that the church has to recognize that we are to be submissive to authorities. It, it is, we are not revolutionaries in the obvious sense. We're submissive. We subject ourselves to authorities, and it looks different. So we are to be subjects to political authorities, superiors over us in business, as well as um, leaders in our family, matriarchs, patriarchs, uncles, aunts, older siblings. We're supposed to be subject to all of them, but the part that really gets me is to be ready for every good work. Essentially, Paul is saying that we are to be at, available and at the disposal of these leaders, regardless of whether or not we like them. No matter who's in power politically, regardless of the qualifications, we have to be respectful and subject ourselves to them and honor them. Now, that's not very fun to do. In, in our country, we are so encouraged to express our disapprovals that even in the church, we can push that too far, and we're, we're being disrespectful. We're not subjecting ourselves to authority. And our country celebrates that awesome power to it. But there is a level where that becomes inappropriate for a believer. And sure, in our country, we are allowed to do that. But are we wanting to live as citizens of America now or as if we're citizens of the heavenly kingdom to come? And and so if we were to live in the heavenly kingdom to come, all of the leaders would be deserving of our respect. These, you know, saints in leadership of God's eternal kingdom. We're supposed to be acting like that now, even if we disapprove, and we can disapprove, and we can share our disapproval, but we have to be respectful and availing ourselves to the disposal of our political leaders. Or in the workplace where the water cooler becomes a place where everybody talks about how the boss is not qualified to lead. We're supposed to keep our mouths shut. Or as you grow older in your family and you start to realize that your parents are not perfect or your, your family uh, from your childhood has fallen apart because of the sins of the elders in your family. Keep your mouth shut. We're not supposed to say stuff. We're not supposed to slander. And the reason is because Paul is referring to the, pa- pa- the fact that in our past, we have been the very thing that we now despise. We are only different because the blood of Christ has availed us to transformation. The level of submission that we show in this world is in nature to be otherworldly and to open a door for the gospel. Okay. So verses, or chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Let me read that, and then we'll touch on it. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verses 4 through 7 is Paul's recognition of the three roles that the three members of the Trinity play in our lives. He's just explained and declared that we're no longer who we used to be. And he's using that as grounds of saying, you can't talk badly about anybody because you used to be just as bad as them. 
And Paul takes the chance, because he can't resist, this is the Apostle Paul, to explain why it is we could be something different than we used to be. Why it is that our nature could be entirely transformed. Before we get into it, I'm going to give you the key to what what he's saying here. It's not the only important point, but it, it is an important key. And it's that he's going to say that the reason that you can be something different today is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's consistent with what Jesus is saying in Acts chapter 9. He's saying, don't do anything quite yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Paul here in Titus chapter 3 is saying, the transformation of your life, the reason you're someone different, it lies in the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. But verse 4, Paul has to do this sort of chronologically. Verse 4 is Paul explaining that this is all God's plan, God the Father's plan. God the Father is our Savior. It's a great title given to God the Father because sometimes we mistakenly only give that to Jesus, right? We say Jesus is our Savior, which he certainly is, but we fail to recognize that the origin of the gospel lies with God the Father. So God the Father, in his gracious kindness, decides he wants to save mankind. So, Let me turn my page here. He rolls out this plan. And man can't save himself by doing these things. It's not like God says, all right, I'm going to give you uh, some different merits of reformation, and once you reach this certain point, you're good and you're saved. He knows we won't be able to do that, and that's really, frankly, not enough. People need to be given righteousness. People need to start propagating righteousness, but they cannot do it. So there is a means and resource at God the Father's disposal, and that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has this amazing ministry in the entire Bible to impart God's characteristics upon people, to transmit God's anything to people, to anybody. The Holy Spirit comes upon Samson, and Samson has the strength of God. Even in the book of 1 Samuel, when Saul, the king, is out of his mind, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he starts prophesying truth of God. So the Holy Spirit has imparted to him God's wisdom and God's truth. The Holy Spirit is not this ethereal force. He is a living and active personal God. But it's an important part of it is to recognize that he has this ability to transmit and impart the characteristics of God upon people. Now, the Holy Spirit can transform uh, fallen people into godly people, but he has to have access to those people first. In the Old Testament, when we have the Holy Spirit coming upon people, it's short and it's sparse and it doesn't really change the people. It's just kind of like a, it's like game breaker, you know, in, is that Madden or is that NFL Street? I don't know. I haven't played video games in like 20 years. Um, it's, it's just a really quick charge. It's like double tap in, uh, in cruising, you know, the, the car racer game at pizza joints. Anyway, um, it, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody, it was not a sustaining phenomenon in the Old Testament. It is, is once quick hit. But with Jesus, you have the first opportunity of the Holy Spirit remaining on somebody. So how do we have the Holy Spirit remain upon us? Let me back that up. Being that the Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead, when people fell into sin, which creates a wall between us and fellowshipping with the true and living God, that affects our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We have a wall between us and God, the Holy Spirit, and we cannot be transformed because of that. So Jesus Christ died upon the cross, enduring unbelievable punishment and pain, and released the intimate fellowship that man could have with God. He re-released it to the world. So that way we can have a close relationship between God, the Father, our creator and savior, between Jesus Christ, the son, our king and our savior, and the Holy Spirit, our transformer and our savior. Um, 
Paul says in verse 5 that by the Holy Spirit, he saved us. And he's not, here he's not talking about eternal salvation from hell. He's talking about saving in the sort of way that you might save a vehicle from a salvage yard, refurbish it, repurpose it, and restore it. Uh, A really poor illustration of this would be Imagine a classic car collector finds out that there's um, an antique Hudson that's just dilapidated, falling apart, and rusting in a junkyard somewhere. And he's got, he's got the mechanic who can restore the, you know, the crucial mechanics of it into working condition, and that mechanic is also a body expert who can make the car look beautiful again. So he sends his son to go buy the vehicle and subjects the vehicle to the work of the good mechanic the good mechanic being the Holy Spirit. The things that Paul is asking us to do here and the things that he's asking Cretans to do here far exceeds what we could do on our own. To be subject to all authorities, we all have problems with various different political leaders in power. We all have problems with various different people who are over us in business. We all have complicated family matters. To be on it 24 hours a day takes a transformation. But the Holy Spirit has that ministry to impart upon you the wisdom of God, the strength of God, the endurance of God, the compassion of God for people that are troubling and trying to love. Verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Our acceptance of God is concurrent with us performing good works. It has feet. It has active characteristics to it. In verse 8, it says that believing in God is somehow... The, the belief in God is validated or proven false by our good works, by the fruit that we bear. They they're coincide with one another. Accepting Jesus Christ is kind of like taking a job offer and accepting it. When, when you accept a job, you're accepting the payment of it, the reward of it, but you're also accepting the responsibilities of it. Sometimes you hire somebody who wanted the payment but didn't want the responsibilities, and so they clearly didn't accept the job offer. That's what we've got. We have a reward that's free, but we also have responsibilities that come along with that. And the reason is, is because Jesus loves his enemies. The impending judgment for Jesus' enemies, it is coming. It was coming for us. It was promised for us, but because Jesus' kindness has broken through because of his death on the cross and because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It is no longer coming for us, but it's coming for those we love. Our co-workers and our friends and our family members, they're still on the wrong side, but hallelujah for the patience of God. Jesus' reign is now, but fortunately not yet. There's time to be the foot soldiers, to be the loyalists on the ground reaching out to people and explaining, look, I love you, and Jesus loves you, and I want you to recognize that there is a way out of what is to come, and there is a way into what is to come, the good side of it. So the two foundations of life attend to the transforming fellowship with the saving God. And two, make disciples, convert the enemies of God into subjects of God and propagate this gospel of salvation throughout the world. God loves the people you love, but he loves them more. And that's what we have to do with our time. That's what we do with our time between times, place between places, halfway down the stairs, this time of engagement. We have time, and it's by God's mercy. And so recognize that wherever you are in life, that's where God wants to work. You are the best equipped to fulfill the assignment that you've been given. If you're not a pastor and you don't feel called to be a pastor, don't be a pastor. 
If you're not a missionary and you're not called to be a missionary, don't think that you need to learn how to gear up and become a missionary. That may not be what God's calling you to do. If you're a father, be a father. And be a redeemed father that performs otherworldly in nature. Or fill in the blank. I would recommend that you read through the entire book of Titus because Paul starts calling out people by demographic. Young men, old men, young women, old women, bond servants, or what we can, you know, consider applicable to us as employees. It's in there. It opens a way to the gospel. I, I want to close with a story. This is from, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. I'm just going to give you a summary of it. There is this man who's possessed by demons, and he lives in the tombs amongst the dead. And he terrorizes the entire region every single day. He comes out, he cuts himself, and he wails. And people are horrified by him, so what they try to do is they try to stop him, they can't do that, so they bind him up with rope that it won't hold, so they chain him and they shackle him, but he's otherworldly in strength, and he breaks out of it every time. So he's just roaming freely. Now, Jesus and his apostles arrive on the other side of the Galilee into a land called Decapolis, and this is, this is not where Jesus normally ministers. He ministers in Capernaum on the other side of the lake, but he's come all the way over here, and he sees this man. Now, this man, the real man deep down inside, not the demons that possess him, but the man for a brief second is able to muster up his own control to worship Jesus. He recognizes who Jesus is. I don't know how he was able to do that, but for a split second, he falls at the, at the feet of Jesus and worships him. But before he can take that any further, the demons within him start saying, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? They start questioning Jesus. And Jesus' response, not afraid at all, says, what's your name? Maybe because the, the demons are calling out Jesus by name. And he says, what's your name? And the voice within the man says, we are legion, for we are many. And if you've heard a sermon on this, on this account of, in the Gospels, you may have heard that a legion is a military term referring to roughly about 6,000 troops. So maybe legion is saying there's thousands of us in here. We don't have a name. We have a description of what it's like in here. And Jesus casts out these demons. They go into a herd of pigs. They go into the water. Now, the, the townspeople become afraid of Jesus. These are townspeople who've been terrorized by this demon-possessed guy, but they become afraid of Jesus, and they kick him out. So Jesus has this principle of if people aren't welcoming your ministry, you dust off the very dirt from your robes and you leave. So he turns around, and he goes to the boat. Now, the man who was once possessed follows Jesus and tries to board the boat, steps into the boat, and Jesus forbids him. He says, don't come with us. Instead, stay here and go to your family and friends and share with them the compassion God has shown you. And Jesus gets in the boat and leaves. We never hear what this man's name actually is. We only know the description of the demons who possessed him, but it does say that this man went throughout Decapolis, these ten cities on the other side of the Galilee, proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. What's the point? That can be, that's all of our stories. At one point in time, God has shown us great compassion and delivered us and healed us. And for some of us, we're going to get back in the boat with Jesus and we're going to go to distant lands and we're going to do missionary work there and we're going to do big vocational clerical work. But for other of us, Jesus doesn't even want us to get in the boat. You don't have to get into the boat with a bunch of godly disciple-like people and go travel somewhere else away from home. Maybe your assignment is exactly where you are. Because you don't need credentials. You don't need a name or a degree. All you need is a testimony of compassion that God has shown you in your deliverance. And you need a relationship with different people. And with those two things, you could bring the gospel to people that you love into places where Jesus is otherwise not even permitted. Remember, they kicked Jesus out of town, but, he's, but that man stayed there proclaiming the compassionate testimony that he had. 
this is the life. This is the potential that we have as loyalists to the one true king. Time is running out. Time is a literal thing. We're not living in God's heavenly kingdom right now. That's why things are so messed up. That's why in Istanbul, just last night, gunfire broke out and and scores of people are dead. Because as much as Jesus is on the throne, it's now and not yet. And it's all because he wants to provide time for the enemies that he loves. You don't have to overcome any hatred for people that you hate. All you have to do is realize and allow God to redeem and magnify the love for the people you already have. We all have friends and coworkers and family members who don't know God. And this is the life. Two things. Attend a transformative fellowship with the God who saves and make disciples converting Jesus' enemies. Amen? Let's pray, guys. Lord, your plan of the restoration of your kingdom is perfect. Entirely perfect. Even to the point where you temporarily and periodically allow evil to run freely and unrestrained for the opportunity that some might be saved because you love your enemies. It's more complicated to you than just your enemies and just your friends. It's utilizing the relationships you have, God, to reach your enemies and bring them to salvation. You are the God who even protects in the midst of his own judgment. And right now as we're going into an entirely new year, we pray that this would be our life to draw close to you in that relationship and allow ourselves to be transformed, but also that we would truly love our neighbors and our friends and our families by making disciples, converting your enemies. And communion is up here available for us to refresh with you that memory of the cost that you paid to save us. Um, And just... We pray that you would seal this within our hearts. Holy Spirit, overcome us and impart to us the compassion that God has for his enemies. In Jesus' name, amen.